Hey gang, welcome to another episode of Value Added, the real estate podcast. On this week's episode, we're chatting with Ben Inman. Ben is the founder of Atlanta, Georgia-based Inman Equities. They are a real estate private equity firm. They have amassed over 2,500 units at a valuation of over $200 million in the last three years since they've been in business. Previous to founding his firm, Ben was the head of acquisitions at Grant Cardone's Cardone Capital based down in Miami, Florida. Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Welcome to Value Added, the real estate podcast where we speak with the brightest minds in the world of real estate who provide, create, and realize value in an ever-changing market. And now your host, Nick Walters. You're currently in Minneapolis, Minnesota with a foot of snow on the ground and more to come. Tell me about your, uh, where you are right now. <laughs> yeah, so I'm hiding in a basement because I'm not used to this cold weather. Uh, so you know, my wife is from Minneapolis and so we come up here a couple of times a year to spend time with her side of the family. And uh, the reason why we come at this time of year is so we don't get caught in the snowstorms uh, that, oops, you know, yeah, <laughs> that, that kind of, you know, blanket the area between December and uh, March, I guess. But, but here we are uh, a foot and a half of snow on the ground and it's still coming down very heavy and it's supposed to be another foot on the ground from what I'm being told. And so, I'm not used to this. I'm okay with it for a few days, but you know, I can hang out as long as I have a snowmobile or some kind of toy to play with. <laughs> I'm, I'm good, um, but I'll make it work. <laughs> well, we, we need to find you a, a toy to play with while you're up there. Uh, so you, uh, wait, where in the South did you grow up? Uh, so we're from Nashville. Uh, we currently live in Atlanta. Awesome. What part of Atlanta are you in? So we're on the north side in Roswell. Roswell, sure. All right. So I, have, I, have, I, I used to live in Atlanta when I was in college, and uh, okay. one, of my, one of my best buddies from college is in commercial real estate down, down there in the Collier's office, and my, uh, my youngest brother works for the Braves. So if you need tickets, okay. uh, Andrew, hit up, uh, hit up my boy Ben here. I'm willing. I, I, like, I like going to baseball games. You know, I don't go to them a lot, but it's surprising of how, how quiet it is during the game until there's like a, a home run or, or, or a big hit or something. Uh, that's when people get up and start clapping and screaming and everything. But otherwise, it's, it's, it's a pretty chill sport. It's, uh, you know, a lot of people complain that it, it you know, a three-hour ball game, it, it's a, it takes a lot of time and it's sort of boring. But uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a good, uh, um, it's a good sport to, uh, to entertain clients and, and just yeah. enjoy yourself without the, you know, uh, yeah. the craziness, right? Correct. No, I, I enjoy it. And just to, it's just a pastime, right? It's like you grew up watching it on – TV and movies and stuff. And there's something about wanting hot dog and a popcorn at the game. It's, it kind of goes hand in hand. Exactly. It brings you back to your childhood. <laughs> yeah. So let's, uh, let's talk about your career. So you, uh, you, you broke off on your own uh, a little while ago uh, in, in the multifamily uh, investment space. But uh, tell the listeners a little bit more about where your career has taken you over the years and, and where you are today. Yeah, so it's been very interesting, and uh, ironically, I've had the same conversation, I feel like, for the past couple of days, but uh, so I literally started my career from the ground up. Uh, started as a landscape architect, uh, always wanted to be on the multifamily side, always wanted to own uh, apartments, and so I just started where I could, and that was single-family home landscape architecture, and so 
they ended up doing really well. And I was introduced to a large developer down in Miami um, to come on board and be their corporate landscape architect for all their multifamily projects throughout the Southeast. Um, he wasn't going to hire me at first. He thought I was too young at that moment. Um, and I found out that he was actually hiring for a project manager as well, because these landscape projects are, they were 250 to $500,000 of landscaping, which is a lot of landscaping. And you're talking about boulders and trees and shrub. I mean, just a lot. And you're talking about a 50 acre property. It's a pretty big undertaking. And so I told the guy, don't hire the other person. I'm going to fill both roles. And a matter of fact, I'm willing to come work for you for free for 30 days without pay. And if it works out, we'll move forward. If not, then we'll shake hands and part ways. No harm, no foul. Uh, he called back that next day and said, bring it on. And so um, that ended up lasting for almost four years. And so thankfully, he started paying me from day one, um, became a really good mentor. And so I really got a crash course uh, in the industry. And that was my really my first big foray into multifamily space. And that was back in 04, 2004, 2005. Um, that lasted till around 2009 or 10. Um, so I had a really good uh, track record to, to really boost me off. And then from there, um, ended up moving back to Nashville, started a, a marketing company, then ended up becoming one of the top uh, entertainment marketing companies uh, in Nashville. We represented a lot of country artists, um, some other music artists as well. I mean, did really well with it. And when the economy started coming back around and real estate started ticking back up, I went to Marcus Millichap as a broker, uh, not because I wanted to be a broker, but because I wanted to be in the industry. I just wanted to be in the game because um, that's ultimately where I wanted to be. And so in that role, I was introduced to uh, Grant Cardone. Didn't know who the guy was, never heard of him. So I said, you know what, let's go meet with him and I'll see what happens. And two interviews later, he hired me. Um, at the time, it was called Cardone Acquisitions. And, you know, ended up helping him build his portfolio out and which gave birth to Cardone Capital. Um, at the time, he was just buying properties with his own money and, and he would kind of backfill it with some, you know, a handful of family and friends, nothing major. He, he, he had the bulk of the equity in the deal. Um, and then when we started syndicating capital uh, on three properties, that's what gave birth to Cardinal Capital. And that was class B properties. And then there was a certain timeline that I gave myself uh, for him to make certain things right. Cause there were some things that I was told that just never transpired. And I gave it a certain amount of time um, or I was going to leave. And so I ended up leaving. Uh, so I didn't leave blindly, left with a plan. I had a plan in place in the event that he didn't make it right. Um, I was going to leave out, start my own shop. And it's what I did and never looked back. Here I am today. So a couple things here. I, I, I want to talk a little bit more about your experience with Grant Cardone because uh, he's one of the most recognizable individuals in multifamily investment, but also just in social media alone. He, he leverages his, his platform. But I want to go back to that, that area, that time between 2004 and 2010. You were in landscape architecture. Uh, you were kind of cutting your teeth on the business the, then. Um, what, what sort of what sort of capacity were you, aside from landscape architecture, what sort of capacity were you, uh, were you serving with that developer you were working with uh, then? And what, what did you learn from that experience? Well, it was, it was a lot. I mean, so to this day, I still have a good relationship with the guy. So it started as, as I mentioned, landscape architecture, and then uh, ended up being on the project management side. And so not only did I, was I overseeing the landscaping, it also moved into helping oversee 
the asphalt and the seal coating and the roofing and the exterior paint. So a lot of the curb appeal components. And then uh, it just so happened that the CEO of the company, his favorite position was landscaping. And so he and I developed a strong bond for that reason. Uh, and he knew I was a straight shooter. If he calls me and asks me a question, I'm going to give it to him like he is because he was surrounded with a bunch of yes men, people that told him what he wanted to hear. Uh, and then I come along, I tell him what he needs to hear. It may not be what he wants, but it's what he needs because you've got to know about the problems so you can address the problems. Right. And so he had other project management uh, managers in place that oversaw the interior construction component. So he would ask them just like he asked me, um, what was accomplished for the day or for the week. And then he, he just called a couple of them not being very truthful. So he would always have me follow up and go in and check on their work to make sure it was done satisfactorily. And then that ended up playing kind of a, a role in the interior renovation process. And so it was a really good learning experience, very fast track process from landscaping to exteriors to interiors. And that's what really helped me get a handle around how he structured things. And I took that to where I am today because we don't hire general contractors typically in, in our renovation processes on our properties, because what I learned from him was you structure things um, by sourcing your material and your labor separately. And so I just carry that through to where I am today. So I'm able to get a lot of my costs cut by 30, 35% because we kind of manage everything in house. And so, but not only that, you know, working with the leasing agents and the property managers, you know, because it all kind of comes full circle. Um, and that's why still to this day, when we do a property today, I focus heavily on the exterior component because that curb appeal component is so vital because that's what gets the word on the street out. That's what gets people that are in the market to see a dilapidated property that they've known it to be this particular brand or this reputation for quite some time. And then, so when you go in and fast track that process, change the reputation as fast as possible, because my whole thing is speed of execution equals speed of ROI. So the faster you get that done, you know, the faster it, it only benefits you. Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the first impression that you put in somebody's uh, mind is it starts right there at that, that curb appeal. I mean, that's, I, I, First and foremost, I think that is the most important part to just uh, people can see from the outside, hey, what's going on over there? You know, there must be a new owner. Look at the the, the money that they're putting into improving this this uh, this asset. Um, but it, I want to go back to your your past experience before you broke off on your own. Um, okay. You were um, you were on Grant Cardone's acquisition team. Um, where you know how how did you contribute to, to building that portfolio and wh where was the portfolio when you first started versus uh, when you left the company? Um, and, and what did you, how did you contribute to that growth? Yeah. So, so when I got there, there was no one in the real estate department. It was, it was, it really was just me and Grant. And then Ryan, his pilot uh, was in the sales department. He was coming over into the real estate department. So Ryan was, kind of under me, so to speak. And then we just kind of kept building from there and adding on some administrative people uh, under us as it kept growing. But when I got there, the portfolio value was around 300 million. When I left, it was around 550 million. Um, so what we did to contribute to that is, you know, we, we bought and sold, right? And so there was a, there was one property in particular that pretty large property in, uh, in 
Charlotte, North Carolina that we divested of, and then we kept adding things as well. So what we did is we went in there, it was two, like a two-pronged approach. So we focused on the acquisitions mainly, but we also focused on the portfolio management. And what that consisted of is we took Grant's sales program, uh, the Cardinal University, right, that most people, many people know about. Uh, I had, we had access to that as employees. So, you know, I went through the whole program. So we took that program and broke it down to the vital components that relate to leasing efforts. Uh, and managing a property. And so, because a leasing agent, it's a sales job, right? You have to lease, you have to sell because it's kind of one and the same. So we did weekly calls with the property uh, staff, the inside staff, so the property manager, the leasing agents, and just kind of walk them through different processes. Uh, and it really, it helped to boost up the occupancy, but it also helped to get more qualified tenants in there that were willing to pay a little bit more money. So it was kind of a two-pronged approach running in tandem with each other for the acquisitions building out because, you know, the more properties you buy, the more valuation the, the, the overall portfolio goes. And then on the other side of that with the leasing component, the reason why we were focused on that is because as a portfolio manager, we had a NOI target that Grant gave us of, of $19 million. And I said, no, no let's, let's make it 20 And so he said, okay, let's do it 20 So we set it at 20 uh, We ended up hitting 21 and so we exceeded his budget or his, his target by $2 million until I opened my big mouth and, and tried to push it a little bit higher. But now you he, want, now he wants 25 the next year, right? Yeah. <laughs> but but that, that was all good. It was a good experience, but it kind of let you know how, how hard and fast you could really push things. So it was a team effort. Um, you know, Grant was very involved, but you know, for the most part, it was, it was us controlling um, the operation side. And even from the renovation component, I was able to add some value there because as I mentioned, kind of like cutting my teeth with the other developer in Miami for quite some time, I was able to go in there, see what they were paying on some renovations because they would let uh, the property management company kind of run with the renovations. And so when I went in there, oversaw the budgets, you know, there was a, they, they were just overpaying for a lot of things. So I put a stop on all the renovations renegotiated all the fees and then turned the keys back over to the property management company. It really saved a lot of money. I don't really remember the amount of money that it was in total, but I do remember on one particular property, we saved like $200,000 um, just on balconies. Hmm. It's crazy. Yeah, that's pretty significant. And then once you scale that over several assets, that, that definitely adds up, doesn't it? Correct. It, it, it really does. And so when I left, I know Ryan stepped into my position and then they actually had to hire another uh, renovations guy to come in house because I was really filling both roles. Um, but once again, I'm not, I'm not, I don't say that to make myself sound like I know everything or, you know, they had to replace me with two people. But the reality is I think my background uh, being from the ground up, uh, there's a lot of value there. And, and I think I was able to contribute a lot of value to that team. Uh, so that when I left, I mean, I, I didn't leave like I was in the industry for two years and then decided to start my own shop. I mean, there, there's a, there's an 18 year history there, right? Not just overnight thought. So your time with Grant, what was one thing that, you know, the most important piece of what you know now that you took from your experience working with a $500 million uh, portfolio and growing? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a couple things. Uh, there's one in particular that stands out that, um, you know, he would always say that if you buy on cash flow, that cash flow, if it's strong enough, it'll take you through any downturn. 
And so I just kept with that because given where we are today in the market with, you know, COVID-19 going on, if you think about that, it's, it's, it's probably one of the best pieces of advice you can give someone that it, that's one reason I don't go into class A deals, right? Because the class B and class C deals, they typically cash flow better. So that's why we focus on that product type because that cash flow will get you through a downturn in most cases. Um, so if your deal pencils to an eight to ten to twelve percent cash on cash in you know years one or two, you know you can bet that that's going to help carry the weight if you were to get whacked on the occupancy or collections related issues um, versus you know working with a thinner margin. So I think that that's probably one of the best takeaways. Um, you know, there, there was just others, but that's probably the one that I would have to pick if I had to pick one. So here we are today, uh, October of 2020, uh, you have Inman Equities that is, it's humming right along. Uh, you opened your shop, what, about a year ago? Is that right? Uh, so I, I opened it three years ago. Oh, three years ago. All right. So you've been, so you've, I, I think the last, the, the last count, uh, you're at about uh, 200 million of, of, of assets under management, under ownership. Is that correct? So we're 205 million right now, and we're closing on a 30 million dollar property in two weeks. Good for you. And how many units is that? So that's 288 units that we're closing on in two weeks. So right now we're at 2520. Uh, once you add the 288, so that takes us right to close to 2800. So let's talk about your your mandate, your criteria. Um, being being in the southeast, living in Atlanta, uh, I, I'm sure you're looking at all of those hot markets in the southeast. But tell us a little bit more in detail about what your uh, what your investment criteria is. Yeah, so Class B uh, is ideal. I mean, we we do have some C's in the in the in the portfolio, um, but there are C's in in, in B areas. Um, you know, that's ideal. But but when we started we had two buckets that we primarily focus on. We pro we focus on the larger institutional size bucket to where, you know, requires check sizes of 5 million or more um, per property. And then we have a smaller bucket that, you know, 50 unit, 70 unit properties to where, you know, it requires a $2 million equity raise. So I did that with two different strategies. And now here we are fast forward to today is I have a portfolio on the smaller side. So we'd go into an area like Atlanta and I would buy a 50 unit and a 72 unit and then a 40 unit and then a 60 unit. Uh, so I built out a portfolio rather quickly um, of smaller properties and the bigger stuff, if you can go into a new market and you know, pick up 150 to 200 units, that's enough to enter a big market. And if, if you didn't add anything, you, you, you could still survive. But fast forward to today, you know, we f- primarily focus on properties that are 150 to 300, 300 units per property. Um, and we can buy larger portfolios, but on a single asset count, that's, that's our, our ideal target now. Um, just because I've proven out the track record, right? Cause a lot of equity partners, a lot of, uh, lenders, they want to see that two year. That's kind of like the secret number is a two year window of ownership and operations. Um, and so we've proven out the concept. We've proven out that we can raise the money. Um, so now we're just in a better place to where we can get more institutional capital uh, and get bigger de- deals done easier now than before. You, so your institutional capital, those sources are from whom? Is this are are these hedge funds, family offices that you're that you've built relationships with? Yeah, so it's a blend. It's uh, family offices. We have some uh, some life insurance companies, uh, and then some private equity groups that you know provide some some nice prep equity uh, that just really helps to to juice the returns a little bit. 
Um, but we, we, we have a lot of conversations and over the past few years, I've had a lot of conversations with, with a lot of groups. I was just, wasn't quite ready. And so at the end of last year, I had to ask myself, you know, going into 2020, um, you know, before COVID and everything happened, you know, what do I want to let go of in order to keep scaling out the business? And part of that was letting go of the capital markets raising component because we can do it and I'll keep doing it, but it's, it's a full-time job in itself, raising equity. And you know, when you're trying to raise equity for a property and, you know, you're having to, let's just say you're having to bring in 20 investors, depending on the size of the deal, you, ha- you have to pitch the deal 20 times or, or maybe even 30 or 40 times to get the 20 people to commit. Uh, and when you get to the point where you can get large institutional equity checks to, to stroke one check, it makes your life a lot easier. Um, and this, this property we're closing on in two or three weeks from now, that was an $11 million raise. And here we are three weeks before closing and we were fully funded. That's great. And so these larger check sizes that you're getting from these institutions, uh, are, you, are you giving up some of, the, uh, some of the ownership on the GP side or are they all coming in as LPs in your, in your cap stack? Yeah, so they're all coming as LPs in the cap stack. Uh, we do have some family office partners that partner up with us. Um, and depends on the arrangement, you know, we'll give them anywhere from, you know, 15 to 20% up to 50%, um, depends on their participation, depends on what they want to, uh, how, how, how involved they want to be. Um, and I'm okay with that. I, I like getting deals done. I like to diversify uh, my portfolio. And so I, I don't, I don't have to have a hundred percent of, of every deal. I'm okay with doing 50, 50 splits. Uh, and it's worked out quite nicely for us. And quite honestly, I, I kind of like that structure. And a matter of fact, the way that I, I usually tell people uh, when you're starting out, you're, you're going to have to partner up in, in most cases. And then, you know, ask yourself after two years or as you approach that two year window, then ask yourself, do you want to keep doing it with partners or do you want to go off on your own and buy 50 units here, 70 units there? Um, I had personally found that I like to continue doing partnership deals because I can get a lot more deals done, a lot bigger. So in the event that one of them did go belly up for some odd reason, at least we can still survive because all the other properties should still be, you know, humming along pretty well. Your team does a really good job of, of marketing your business through social media, um, particularly LinkedIn that I, I see you all the time. Um, a lot of times you're referencing your unicorns, those, those really sweet deals that you're finding out there. Um, tell me a little bit about your unicorns and, and how you're, how you're uh, coming across these, these that's, guys. That's hilarious because I, I just actually had a meeting in downtown Minneapolis yesterday and it was, it was funny because somebody brought it up and I was like, you know, what, what began is, is really just a, maybe a joke or something actually has become somewhat of an identity um, because now I'm having, you know, someone just sent me a, uh, a golden unicorn statue. And so I'm like, okay, maybe this is a thing now. I don't know. But, uh, but so let's, I, let's, let's stop there for a second. Cause this is actually a very interesting story. You, you put a, a six or seven minute video talking about this statue that you received in the mail. Let's take 30 seconds and just tell the listeners about this and how this, uh, you know, the sender of this unicorn really differentiated himself, uh, in your eyes. Yeah. So when you're trying to, you know, get the attention of someone and you're knocking on the door, you're making phone calls, you're making emails and text messages or whatever, and you're just not breaking through that door for some odd reason. Sometimes you have to resort to being creative. 
And you may need to find something about that person um, in order to send them a gift in the mail or whatever the case may be. Because I will tell you that that tells me with this particular guy that sent me this golden unicorn, he's paying attention. He, he knows me you know, almost better than I know myself. And so in all fairness to him, you know, I'm going to give him the time and attention that he needs because if he's that creative on getting my attention, I expect him to be that creative on solving my solution or solving, creating a solution for my problem, whatever the problem is. And I think of this particular guy, he has like technology related multifamily um, products and services. So I'm going to let him pitch me. Uh, whereas before I would just maybe blow it off because sometimes you, you, some properties aren't a right fit for that. Um, but if, if, and when I can find an opportunity to plug him into, I'm going to plug him into it just because I appreciate that gesture. And that's one of the things I learned from, from Grant in, in some of his uh, Cardinal university stuff. You know, he had a story in there that reminded me of, of what this guy did for me. It reminded me of a story that Grant did for someone that he was trying to get the intention of and how effective it was. And even, even if he didn't get the business, he was successful in getting the attention. Correct. Yeah. That's uh it's it's a, a really great story. Um so let's go back to those unicorns. These these deals that you've been finding um that you've been able to to transact on. Um how are you finding your your really sweet deals today in a very competitive market still? Yeah, so I think that's a really, really good question. And so early on I built out my well, my focus was to build out a reputation, and that's a reputation for closing deals, not retrades, uh, and not dropping deals. So we do so much upfront work that once we put a deal under contract, if, if we put it under contract, we know it's going to work, or at least we're, we're hopeful it's going to work because we've kind of sniffed through all the, all the mess, uh, if anything exists. And so when we put a property in the contract, brokers know that we're going to close the deal. And so that carries a lot of weight. And so in doing that, the word gets around not only in the same brokerage, but to other brokers in the, you know, throughout that, that region, that territory. And so we get a lot of on market and off market deal flow from these brokers. Um, for once again, some sellers don't want to go through a full process. They want to know that they can sell with a guaranteed close with a qualified group. And that helps us to get access to some of these deals because I don't care if a deal is on market or off market, as long as it pencils. And if it's a good deal, I don't care that, it's, it's on or off. Matter of fact, I prefer it to be on because I know it's a clean, ready-made deal. Off-market deals kind of scare me away a little bit because I don't know how serious the sellers are. But I would say maybe half the properties we bought have all been off-market, that, but that's never been my strategy. Um, but fast forward to, or flipping over to the, uh, the on-market properties, uh, most of the deals that you see in the marketplace today are anywhere from you know, 13 to 15% on the IRR to the LPs. But because of that reputation, as I mentioned, it gives us the deal flow that we get access to. Most of the properties that we acquire now, they're anywhere from an 18 to a 20% to the LP IRR. So those deals are still in the market. It's, you know, the question is, are you finding them? Because they are out there. I mean, we have one right now we're putting an offer on today in a really good market uh, with a really big brokerage group. Uh, ironically, it's a broker group I've transacted with a lot. Um, so that's going to help our position at the table. But, you know, those deals are still out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and also, you know, there, there could be something on market that was looked at by 30 other shops and it just didn't fit the 
you know, the strategy of, of what may be your bread and butter, right? Um, exactly. And I will tell you, if, if I can, uh, you know, you probably see me mention this Daytona Beach property uh, quite a bit. So on paper, that was a two and a quarter cap rate deal. But I know that going in, we could strip out certain proper, certain, uh, certain expenses from the seller, uh, which gave us like a four and a half cap is what we ended up buying it at. Um, but then again, some people passed on that because maybe they didn't have the vision or whatever the case may be. But either way, we ended up winning the deal. And the benefit that we're getting out of that deal today is we're getting anywhere from $350 to $680 rent increases on renovated units above the classic units that the seller was getting. So as long as that continues tracking forward, I mean, you got to think about this. Our pro forma rents for a two bedroom renovated was $1,275. We're hitting up to $1,400 to $1,475 on these units now. And if that were to continue rolling out, it's going to end up being maybe a double headed unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what one of those look like. So that's yeah, uh, that's a pretty nice deal. We'll see what it looks like. <laughs> I, I don't know. But as long as it, I, mean, and I, I had this conversation with someone yesterday, I keep going back to that, but um, that those deals are still out there. The trick is to, even though you get the, you can prove a concept on maybe a handful of units, the trick is to roll it out across every unit. That's where the truth is going to come out. And so we're getting some good traction. So as long as it continues, you know, we're going to, I'm not letting the foot off the gas until it's all done. That's great. Uh, we're going to uh, conclude this episode, Ben, uh, asking you the hard hitting questions. These are the questions that we ask every one of our listeners. So uh, the first question I always like to ask is what is your why? Man, I would say my, my kids. And that really is what it is because I mean, I, I know what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck uh, and really have to fight and start from zero and build things up to where it is. And so, you know, knowing that my kids won't have to go through some of the hard times that I went through, because I'm going to tell them that you can go after any hope, any dream, any passion that you have, but I want you to have an underlying understanding of how multifamily works, because this is going to fill your lifestyle. It'll at least cover your lifestyle um, while you go chase any dreams, if you it happen to have something different that you want to go for, you need to know this business. Besides your alarm clock, what gets you out of bed every morning? The smell of coffee. I like it. Like Folgers, like the best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup. Only I don't drink that stuff, but everybody can relate to the commercial, but that's... What's your go-to coffee brand? You know, I, I don't really get it wrapped up in the in the coffee that much, I'd say I'm in the grocery store. I'll pick up some caribou or some, some, uh, some Starbucks or whatever. It, it has to be a decent brand. I, I won't go with the Folgers or Maxwell house and that stuff, but it doesn't have to be like your local coffee shop, whole beans that you get and you have to grind. I've been there. It's like, to me, it's like, who has time to get up every morning and grind their own beans. I just want to get up and pour my cup and go. Yeah, I, I'm a Dunkin' Donuts guy. If I have to grab and go, I'm a Dunkin' Donuts guy or I, I make coffee at home first thing in the morning. Yeah. But uh, I yeah. do agree. That's, that's, a, that's a part of my, my first thing in the morning. Um, yeah. Next, why don't we talk about a, a book or a, a blog or some piece of media that's, uh, that you've read sig that's significantly uh, provided value to your life or career recently? 
Yeah. So I would, you know, I've always kind of read a lot and listened to a lot of audio books because back in 2000, I heard a, I don't even remember where I heard it, but I remember hearing that if you read on average of one book a week in your area, your field of study, whatever that field of study, let's just say it's real estate and you read an average of one book a week for an entire year, it is said that you'll have the equivalent of a PhD, right? I didn't make that up. I don't want anybody calling me or texting me or emailing me. It's a PhD. Don't don't do all that. (laughs) Um, But I will say I implemented that from the moment I learned it. Uh, and I've been doing it ever since. Now, I, at, at this point, I, I would love to read a book a week, but I, I just don't do it. But if you fast forward from 2000 uh, to today, so 20 years later, and I've been implementing that on the average of about one book every two weeks to a month for 20 years, it's, it, we've gained a lot. And so there's a lot of books and programs that I've read. I've always read a lot of business books and marketing books. Um, and of course, real estate, I'd say if, I, if there were a takeaway book that I would recommend, there, there are two books. Uh, one is a David Lindahl book that is a Emerging Markets, I think is the name of it. Through my home office, I could pull it out, but I'm happen to be working from my in-laws basement right now. I'll, I will, uh, I'll do a search of that. I think I know what you're talking about. I'll yeah. add that to the show notes. Yep. Yeah, that's a really good book. Um, and then there's another one called key metrics that every real estate investor should know or something. I could probably just completely botch that whole title, but, <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it's some, it's some, and I can email you what it is. I'm just not home right now. Or I can reach behind me and grab it out of the shelf. Um, but I, you know, let's follow up on that. Cause that's a really well, good, one. it's a good reference book. We'll, we'll follow up on that. Yeah. Next question is uh, with, with what you know now, over your 20, 20 plus year career, what would you tell your postgraduate 21 year old self? What would the best piece of advice you would give your 21 year old self? Man, I would just, just underwrite as many deals as you could possibly underwrite just to learn the knowledge and the, just the working knowledge of just where certain numbers should be like on the expense ratios or whether it's, you know, renovation costs or rent growth projections or what have you, just really knowing that spreadsheet and that process front to back, inside and out, you, you can then look at a property on napkin math and know whether, you know, how it's going to roll out across the, across a full institutional style model. Um, so it's just, you know, it takes practice to make perfect. Right. And I think whether you're a musician, uh, see a guitar behind you there, that it, Ten thousand hours to become, you know, a, a practice to become good at something, and so I, I think the same thing plays not only into someone that wants to be a musician or a basketball player, football player, or whatever. You you have to put in the time, uh, and the more you know a subject matter, the better you're going to become at it. And you know, nobody can come in and tell you otherwise. Like I, there's a con- there's no contract that can come in and tell me. Uh, hey, you know, this, your pricing is wrong. It should be this, you know, not that, you know, on an average multifamily value ad deal, I know what my numbers are supposed to be, you know, and, but I wouldn't know that if I didn't have the practice. And so some people going in and doing these budgets and stuff, they really don't have the, you know, the experience. Um, You know, you really have to question some of that because there's a lot of guys out there that are trying to sell courses that, you know, bought a hundred units, but, I can teach you how to buy a property, but you can't teach somebody how to operate a property in a weekend. 
right? It becomes, there's a whole nother side to it. Once you acquire a deal, now what? Now because, what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, now what? Because that's when the real work begins. Uh, but you see these guys, you know, take my course, you know, 3000 bucks or whatever, the, whatever they're charging. Um, it, it's only one sided. It's going to be interesting. That's very, uh, it's very true. Um, finally, how can our listeners get a hold of you, Ben, and learn a little bit more about you? Yeah, so I'm a, you can always email me, uh, binman at inmanequities.com. Uh, you can always find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, username is the same on all those. It's at inmanequities. Uh, obviously, you can reach our website at inmanequities.com. Uh, that website is going through some changes right now, just some updates. So if there's some glitches that you run into, just know that they are temporary. Um, my cell number, I give that out. It's a 615 area code, 513-3088. Um, you can, on a rare occasion, I, if I have a moment and somebody calls me at the right time, I'll pick up the phone. Uh, otherwise, I, I tell people, it's always easiest to text me. Um, and I usually will text you back. So I, I just like to help people. That's great. And um, I, I believe you've recently uh, launched your own podcast. Is that right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? That is correct. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so it's called the Multifamily Cashflow Harvest Podcast. Uh, it's based around the truths of what it's really like to own and operate multifamily. Because it goes back to what I just said a minute ago that you can teach somebody how to buy a property, but it's operating those properties. It's what really gets down to the nitty gritty. That's where the rubber meets the road. And so my podcast that we launched there is just to really have that angle of just the cold, hard truths about what it's like to own and operate multifamily properties and, you know, for maximum cash flow. And so that's, it's simple, but I think it feels a, you know, what I think it feels a void in the market. That's great. You know, everybody wants to hear uh, the, the, the glitz and glamour of, of chasing the unicorns, right? But uh, not a lot of people know about how hard it is to actually operate and, and, uh, and manage, manage a, not just one, but a, a portfolio of properties, right? It's great to have a good portfolio, but look, people, think, people, people see dollar signs and they see unit counts and they say, oh, what's it like to have 3,000 units with this much money coming in and et cetera. But it's a lot of work, you know, there's some people that are driven by acquisition fees or just, they're just fee driven in general. But you know, for us, it's like, I'm more long-term. Like I want these deals to work out because I want my investors to be happy because I know if my investors are happy on one deal, they'll be around for the next deal. Um, and if I'm too, too fee driven, then I'm focused on the wrong things. And I know a lot of syndicators out there that I know one in particular doesn't put anything, no money into his deals. He'll raise a hundred percent of the equity. And for me, I just, I just, that's a very tough pill for me to swallow because I think that if you're going to be presenting a deal in the marketplace, you need to have skin in the game beyond just, uh, you know, your, your, was it elbow, not elbow grease. Um, your sweat equity, your sweat equity. You've got to have sweat equity into a deal as well as capital in the deal. Not, it can't just be one-sided. So I mean, that's my advice on it. Yeah, well, I, I don't know many investors that would go in on a deal without the sponsor putting their own skin in the game. So uh, I, I'd love to hear of that sponsor's uh, Rolodex to see who he's getting uh, getting capital from without putting I'm his own in. You, I don't get it, but it, it, I've seen it happen and I just, I just don't get it. 
we'll we'll end on that note. Ben Inman, <laughs> uh, we really appreciate your time here. Um, and and again, thank you so much for your time and adding your value today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to leave a rating and a review, which will help us introduce the podcast to other listeners. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which will give you access to other episodes you may have missed. Lastly, if you'd like to learn more about investing alongside us, then head on over to valueaddedpodcast.com. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you next week.